Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, stop begging. (laughs) Hey, it's good to see you all. Um, Assassin's going on. It's intense. People are dying. The The king is dead, Josh Jones. They're only cheering so loudly because of how terrified they were that he was in the game. Because Josh just utterly destroyed everybody last time. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, yeah. Hey, uh, it's not Psalm 139 this time. Just this one time. Um, when I, at the beginning of the semester, Conrad uh, asked me, just in a private conversation, what are, what are you going to be doing for sermon series? And I said, the Psalms... And he's like, oh, you're going to do Psalm 22 again? I'm like, I didn't even think about it, but I guess so. <laughs> when Conrad was a wee freshman back in 2017, when the rest of you were just babies, some of you weren't even born yet, Conrad was here at college learning things and remembering my sermon from Psalm 22 um, so I'm, I'm, this is kind of, this kind of for you, Conrad. Um, yeah, his thesis defense was supposed to be today, so it's his big day, so I was like, yeah, this, this is all falling in line, it's all perfect. Psalm 22, it's a nice Good Friday, uh, kind of psalm, which is coming two days. Uh, so, here you go. This is famous last words, or why, or where are you, or I am always with you. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So, yeah, setting aside Psalm 139 for a little bit. And we're still following our psalm rules, though, because this line from Jesus Uh, famous last words, is actually from Psalm 22, but you guys are smart people, so you probably already knew that. Um, So we're going to spend some time thinking about this this evening. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Big question. Also a small question sometimes. The question comes in many shapes and sizes. We ask why out of curiosity. Why is the sky blue? We ask why in aggravation. Why is this person driving so freaking slow in the passing lane? We ask it in defiance. Why should I? Sometimes um, it's just kind of a silly or a petty question. Like there are times when we don't need an answer to why. I don't really deep down care to know why my neighbor's dog would always start barking at 3 a.m. right when I just finally got my baby rocked back to sleep. I would say, God, why? But I didn't really need to know why. But at other times, it is the deepest question 
that we have wrenching up out of our deepest aches. Why? Why is my brother an alcoholic? Why am I depressed? Why did my mom get cancer? Why did my dad leave? Why was I born? And of course, why has to do not just with us and what we go through, but also with God. Why questions for God litter the Bible? Why do you look the other way? Why do you stand far off? Why do you cast us off forever? Why do you forget us forever? Here's one. Why have you done evil to this people? Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden your heart? Why are you sleeping? Why have you brought us here to die? Why have you forsaken me? And in times like these, when why isn't just merely like a fun intellectual exercise where you're staying up till all hours of the night talking about like why the universe is the way that it is, but when actually this question why is coming from deep down in your soul, getting an answer doesn't feel optional. Like it feels like the world could come undone if you don't get some kind of answer, some kind of understanding. More than even just the world coming undone, the agony of not being able to make any sense of what has happened to us can feel like God has just left. From C.S. Lewis, a little extended quote from a book he wrote after his wife died. It's called A Grief Observed. He says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it seems, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. This is still Lewis. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? And then he says, I tried to put some of these thoughts to see a friend this afternoon. He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know. Does that make it easier to understand? End quote. And I think, no. Jesus being forsaken doesn't make my forsakenness any easier to understand. But also think about this. Even if we did understand... Even if we did know why, I've often wondered, would that really help? I mean, take Jesus on the cross asking God, 
Why has God forsaken him? Even if God had given Jesus like a big booming answer from the heavens, here is why Jesus, here, O bleeding Christ, tortured on the cross, is why I am leaving now. Like, would it, would it make it any better if we did know why God had forsaken him, forsaken David, the psalmist, or forsaken me? Does that make the experience of God's absence, the door slammed in the face, does that make it any more tolerable? Even if I had like a perfect understanding of why God took away this person or that person that I loved, they're still not coming back. Answers are no comfort. Enlightened suffering is still suffering. Maybe understanding why isn't all it's cracked up to be. So wouldn't it be simpler if we could just let it be? If we could just move on, content with our ignorance, just take life as it comes? Like, wouldn't that just be easier? Well, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because we can't help but ask. Maybe, though, when we say why, maybe we're not really asking. Like, maybe when we cry out why, it's less of a question and more of an accusation. You, God. We know we won't get an answer, but in moments of like deep disorientation, when everything is upside down and nothing makes sense, something in us shouts it anyway. So maybe we're not looking for an answer. Maybe we're just making a statement. It's got to come out. Why, you, God? Think again about Jesus on the cross, asking, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus expect a reply? Like, wouldn't he already know the answer? Surely Jesus would have been aware of these other Bible verses that we also know, like, he will not leave you nor forsake you. Or, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Like, why not say those? Or instead of Psalm 22's, why have you forsaken me? Why not Psalm 46's, God is a very present help in trouble? Why didn't Jesus say that? And I think it's because the point is not to get an answer at all. Neither the psalmist nor Jesus expected a response when they said, why have you forsaken me? The point is just, here is this anguish. I have to express it. You, God. I don't know if everybody in here has yet had an experience like that. Leanne and I talk all the time about how we feel like we live this weirdly charmed life where we're like waiting for the hammer to drop because we haven't really suffered lots of like acute tragedy or really any of our own. So maybe not everybody knows this forsakenness that I'm talking about and I'm sure that some of you do and I think we at least know others who have had these experiences of silence and darkness. So I wonder, how do we respond when this is the cry of others around us? To our friends, in their disorientation and despair, when they ask why, they look for God and they find only this looming, 
dark, silent wall, how do we respond? And again, let me just say, there's not a once-for-all answer to this, but there are postures that I think we can take towards this question and with those who are asking it. One way we can do it um, is we can approach it triumphantly with like idealism and optimism. Triumphalism is a, it's different. Okay, so I'm all about triumph because Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. He really did. This weekend is a celebration of that. But triumphalism is like winning only. Only winning accepted. Winning by winning. Never winning by any other means, which of course some of you are like, well, how else would you do it? Listen to the gospel we preach here and you might find it out. But we can take the approach to forsakenness and suffering triumphantly. And the view is like this. Well, God is omnipresent, as you know, and omnipotent. So like the forsakenness that you feel must just be kind of like an illusion. Like, yeah, bad things happen. But in reality, God has conquered. So uh, the suffering and all that. So it's really not a big deal, right? Like light and momentary afflictions, right? Like you know the Bible verse, right? So all you got to do is just like acknowledge God's sovereignty. Like just say with me now, he is sovereign. And then that unpleasantness of like suffering and forsakenness, it'll just kind of dissolve like a bad lozenge in your mouth. Now, from a purely objective point of view, it may be true that God is omnipotent and omnipresent. The trouble though, with this purely objective view is that you are not an object. You are a subject. We subjects don't really do pure objectivity very well. So like trying to stand outside and just like look at it from an objective point of view like doesn't really work for us when we're in the middle of subjective terrors like cancer or inexplicable sorrow or just total disconnection from God, like the experience of God's absence really is really true. And you can't just wipe it away with your triumphant get over it. The, the triumphalist approach to somebody who's suffering and they feel that they are forsaken and you're like, hey, it's all good. Because God's omnipotent and omnipresent, that's like telling somebody who is in the middle of an asthma attack, like they're gasping for air, and you're like, hey, there's air everywhere, man. It's all around you. We can also approach the question, here's a dime word for you, nihilistically. It's your fancy philosophy word, Conrad down here to explain it. You can approach it with cynicism and with despair. And it goes like this. You know, it's God that's the illusion. Forsakenness is like the only reality. So we should just stop trying to make such a big deal out of things that ultimately mean nothing. There's no meaning behind your suffering. That's fair enough. <laughs> and at some point, probably all of us have wondered if anything means anything, some of us wonder that a lot more and a lot more heavily than others, but probably at some point you're like, yeah, does any of this mean anything? But I find that in talking to people who insist that there's nothing but emptiness, there is still this like 
just pesky, won't go away, longing for something more, like almost against their own will, they're yearning for something that they won't allow themselves to believe in. Like a friend who told me, I don't think God loves me, but I'm sure he wants me to love others. Or another acquaintance who said, after his dad died, I don't believe in heaven, but my dad is there. Beyond that, believing that forsakenness is all there is, like just nihilism, nothing matters, like that, that may be a way to shield us from the pain of loneliness or loss, but there's a danger to it too. See, while it can drain like the intensity and the significance of suffering, it also drains the significance and intensity of joy. You don't get to choose where it stops sapping the significance out of life. So your loss means nothing but like that, I don't know, birthday cake is the only thing coming to my mind. That doesn't mean anything either. Bad, bad example, but you get it. I think finally the approach we can take, um, spoiler alert, the one I will recommend, is we can approach it incarnationally. How's that for a big theology word? Do you guys know what the incarnation is? that God took on flesh, incarnated, has a body, Jesus. The idea of approaching this experience of forsakenness incarnationally is this. The suffering, the grief, the experience of God's absence are very real, and yet also, paradoxically, so is the God who is there really enfleshed in it. So for the experience of God's absence to be real, as well as, get this, make your brain hurt, God's presence with us in that absence, that's like a paradox, but it comes together in Jesus himself hanging there on the cross, God in flesh crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? Triumphalism says, eh, your suffering is nothing compared to all of the good that God has for you. And nihilism says, ah, your suffering is all there is. The incarnation says God suffers with you. This is what the suffering Jesus, the suffering Jesus on the cross tells us. The suffering Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. This is what it tells us. In the incarnation, God shows us that he does indeed intimately know our suffering, our grief. Even this experience of where is God, he knows it. He bears with us and he carries for us the things that are so unbearable to us. So the incarnational response is not an answer in the sense that it explains these experiences. Hear me, it explains nothing. And again, explanation isn't worth as much as we think it's worth. It's not a comfort. But there are accounts everywhere of people looking and pointing, experiencing deep comfort, saying, God is with me. When I look at the crucified Christ, God says, I know, I know, I suffered beside you. I know, I know, I love you.
And this is no small like hallmark greeting card kind of sentiment that I'm telling you. Because like so many notions of God or gods, yes, like ancient mythological ones, but even just like a lot of our unchecked assumptions about God, if we really question them, is that like God is really somewhere else, mostly unconcerned, far off uh, in the heavenly places, doesn't know what it's like to be you, doesn't care. And like maybe the God or the gods, like maybe they win and maybe they conquer and maybe even they let us benefit from that power, but they don't know us. This is why like the question, like proving that there is a God, again, is not really worth as much as I think we think it's worth. Who cares if there is a God? The question is, who is this God in relationship to me? We might even be tempted to think of God, this far off, somewhere else kind of God. We could even be tempted to think of the God of the Bible this way at times. Like, think of Job. Think of Job. You guys know the story? It's the ultimate suffering story in the Bible. He loses everything. He's asking why about his suffering. And you remember how he's met with that almighty voice from the whirlwind? I mean, how unhuman is that? It's a giant freaking tornado. And just this voice booming out of it. Nobody can relate to that. And the message is, I mean, have a conversation with me on the side sometime about Job, because I could talk about it for a long time. But the message that we mostly get from it is, you wouldn't understand, Job. You don't know what it's like to be God. You couldn't grasp what I do or do all I do, not for one second, you little man. You don't get it. A poem that I love called Answers from the Whirlwind throws the question back the other way. How about you, God? Do you know what it's like to be human? Could you live for a second in this world that you have ordered, O Most High? Here's, here's an excerpt from uh, this poem, Answers from the Whirlwind by Ahmet Majmudar. It goes like this. Did you feel it down your left arm when your heart thirsts for blood and when it thirsts for friendship? Do you feel it in your throat and try to swallow? Does gravity wear on your posture? Does death creep over fields towards you like the shadow of a white cloud flattening the grasses it advances over? Tell me, has desire ever stripped the stringy husk off of your mind and shown you still unripe? If I had been there when you measured out the earth, would you have made it more my size? Do you know how to work with a shovel? Is it graves or foundations you know how to dig? Could you tie me a tourniquet if I required one? How about shoelaces? Speaking of which, do you have any idea what it's like to trip and fall when you do not expect it? Arms shooting out, we double over like we've just been punched and thump a few steps forth, but we stay on our feet, and if there is a hand that catches us, brushes us off, it is not yours. Speak! if you have something more than wisdom. Speak if you have sympathy. This is what the forsaken need. Not wisdom, not answers. Sympathy. Does God have it? To Majmadar's poem, 
the triumphalistic and nihilistic answers offer nothing. God speaks nothing through them. But in his incarnate son, he speaks more than wisdom. He speaks divine sympathy. Yes, he knows what it feels like when your heart thirsts for blood and for friendship. He was betrayed by those closest to him. Yes, he knows what it's like for death to creep over fields toward him like the shadow of a white cloud. He saw his crucifixion coming and he pleaded, begged for it to be stopped. Yes, he can tie you a tourniquet and wash your feet. All of this that Majmudar so beautifully gives this aggravated voice to, God replies to in Jesus through the events, through all the events of Holy Week. Not just suffering, he is with us in all of life. We have seen it with our eyes and heard it with our ears. When he brought out the best wine at the wedding, when he had compassion on the tired and hungry castaway crowds and gave them something to eat, when he insisted on the kids not being shooed away, when he got between an adulteress and her accusers, when he wept at seeing his dead friend, when he said, I thirst, and when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 goes on. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. Be not far from me, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. You hear that word again and again? Far, far, far. The question why becomes a plea of where. In the face of anguish and suffering, the confused why on the lips of the psalmist becomes a prayerful yearning for what matters most nearness, be close, be close. Maybe beneath the angst ridden, why have you forsaken me? That we cry out in our anger, in our confusion, and that our friends cry out in their anger and their confusion. Maybe beneath that we can detect a more sensitive longing, where are you? Why may never be answered, but where might? For us, the answer to Jesus' question, where, why, is in the asking it. Where's God? He's here, suffering with us. He also suffers for us. Who can imagine this scene without remembering Isaiah, the passage that we have recited many times during a Lenten season? He was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Psalm 22 ends with hope a picture of the salvation, the knowledge of God spreading out. It starts with this initial moment of forsakenness, 
Why aren't you so far off? Why are you hiding from me? It starts there, but then it spreads out. Like I picture the way that you take a, like a tablespoon of creamer, you drop it just in a cup of coffee, hot black coffee, and you know how the cloud just kind of like begins to swell up and it mixes in and it works from the bottom and it makes its way throughout until it just kind of transforms it into this beautiful, creamy, smooth, light brown. The suffering servant, the Psalm 22 psalmist, moves from anguish to tell of the name of God, first to the brothers, then to the congregation, then to the offspring of Israel, now moving outwards to the afflicted, all the way to the ends of the earth, and shockingly, even to those who have gone down to death and to those yet unborn. No corner is left untouched. I think Jesus has this in his mind when he quotes Psalm 22. He's thinking of the whole thing. It's up to us to go down the rabbit trail, see where it leads. So it ends up sounding a lot like something else that we heard from Jesus. His final, final words, just before ascending, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, from the brothers to the offspring to the nations to the end of the world. Nothing gets left unredeemed, untouched. And somehow this life and this victory, and here's your proper gospel biblical triumph, somehow that comes through the way of being forsaken, of going down into death and being raised again. What began with, why have you forsaken me, now ends with this salvation spreading like this wild, holy fire. And finally, the very last words, which are appropriate. To begin with Jesus on the cross, why have you forsaken me? To end with the resurrected Jesus, I am with you always. Any explanatory anything of, of, of why, it's pale and it's thin compared to this deepest, brightest, most solid truth, this holy mystery, the same one who suffered with us and on behalf of us, knowing the experience of the absence of God, this same one who cried out, why have you forsaken me? He is very God himself, by whose promise we must live if we are to live at all in times of death. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so now, may we know that he is with us. Let's pray. Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ to the side of us, Christ within us. 
you are with us. Do not be far off.